Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 104 for August 9th, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway, on the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. Hard to believe it's been two years, 104 episodes, and since... Steve Gibson is an engineer and never misses an episode. That means exactly two years, Steve Gibson. We've been doing security uh, now. Hello, Steve. Unbelievable, Leo. It's funny because people who know me have said, okay, how is Leo getting Steve to do this? Really? Like, you know, oh, yeah. I mean, I, well, what I do really they know that I don't know? <laughs> just how busy I am and, you know, that it's, you know, it is a, a it pulls me away from other stuff, but, you know, I really do enjoy it. Well, now and I'm feeling guilty, Steve. I had no nah, idea. No, and, you know, it's been great for spreading the word about SpinRide. I mean, nothing has been so good for, you know, as, as allowing our listeners to tell us their stories. I mean, that's, that's just, that rocks. Well, and, uh, I, and I know you're committed to security. You have been uh, ever since you first discovered spyware on your system, and... Uh, this is so. This really is kind of uh, the pro bono work that you you've been doing all along with Shields Up and Securable and all that stuff. This is just an extension of that. Well, and I haven't told anybody yet, not even you, Leo. But I'm working on or getting ready to start working on my first commercial security thing. Really? Oh, yep. The first, uh, if we if we discount Chromosome, that was sort of a wacky screensaver that I did. Uh, the first thing seriously I've done since Spinrite. Wow. You know, I mean, that uh, commercial security thing that GRC will be uh, publishing. So When you first yeah. discovered spyware, uh, it was, it was, you had started using Zone Alarm, which had just come out at the time, and you noticed something was phoning home. And you wrote a uh, anti-spyware application, didn't you? Um, yes, it, it was related to that. It was, uh, you know, Zone Alarm discovered and of course we talked about this last week when we were talking about leak testing stuff because that was sort of the the genesis of all that mm-hmm. Z- zone alarm awoke me to a, a little piece of junk which the windows version of winzip had put into my machine and then a couple weeks later there was a a sort of an erroneous report of something that sounded much worse well, it wasn't as bad as it sounded, but it was really bad. And you know, and that, that of course, I wrote opt out, but that was that was free also um, because it was just like, okay, get this off that's your right. computer, opt folks. out. I remember that now. Yeah. And actually, that's that was the genesis of the term spyware. As far right. as as far as I know, it was when when um, Gregor Frund, one of the founders of Zone Alarm, and I were on the phone. You know, we said, you know, this is this is spyware. <laughs> so, <laughs> what and, a concept! And and uh, and uh, you then, because it it became such a big area, bigger area than you wanted to get into, you you kind of seeded the uh, co- concept to Adaware to LavaSoft. They started doing exactly. Adaware. 
Exactly. I said, as long as you guys will agree to keep it free, like to keep a free version, then I'd, I'd really not want this. Is I mean, it's like it's like being in the antivirus business where oh, every it's day it's something out. else. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, that just doesn't fit my my approach to things no. so and in fact now uh especially you're probably thinking thank god i didn't get into that business yeah hey let's yeah. uh, uh, uh where this is going to be a q a segment because it's mod four um yep or to to correct our our formula it's <laughs> mod four equal episode mod four equals, equals zero, zero. <laughs> uh so we're gonna uh let's do a little um well actually i'll tell you what let's do the errata because i know you have a tiny little fix and, uh, the, yes, and- I just got, I've got two things. Um, one thing now, this uh, people can check XP, but but it was watching the security updates go into XP. You know how you, with Windows Update you're able to choose if you want to do an express update or the custom. Well, I always click custom just because you know I'm me. I want to see what's you know Microsoft is giving my machine. Not that I really have any choice in the matter because, you know, it's like, okay, fine, whatever, you know, want to do. Otherwise, it keeps bugging you about, oh, you missed this important. It's like, okay, fine. But (laughs) I saw something go by on an XP system about card space. And I said, what? Card space? Wait a minute. That's Vista. No, 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 my friend. Somewhere along the way, Microsoft has slipped card space into oh. XP, and we all have it now. Oh, wow. Now, card, yes. uh, we talked a little bit about card space, but refresh my memory. Um, card space is Microsoft's single sign-on solution, sort of the Microsoft does open, I, open ID sort of deal, and they've promised to be able to use open ID as a back end. So card space is sort of, you can think of it as the UI for open id and and a very nice one and sure enough on all of my xp machines i've looked around trying to find one that hasn't been updated for a while because i'm trying to think when did this appear when did they slip this in but on your control panel of windows xp there is now a card space item and you can go in and create your own information cards remember it was originally called info card but we're thinking that there was some sort of a of a trademark collision or oh, something right, who right, knows right, right. um anyway it's in xp which makes it you know very exciting because now of course everybody has it either if you've got xp or vista then card space is there and uh, how does it relate to passport the old single sign-on it, it, it's hopefully something that won't die because i use passport uh, still for expedia of all things well, exactly. Well, some of Microsoft sites do require it, but right. and and Microsoft's goal, and of course, was for, actually yeah. Well, exactly. Microsoft's things do, and their goal was for it to be like the ubiquitous solution, but nobody else, <laughs> nobody else wanted it. So, so we're hoping with something as open as OpenID behind it, this could be a very nice. UI and what excites me is it's like okay well if Vista has it I don't know I'll care in a few years but XP has it now which you know means that we all have it essentially. But now how do you get to? I mean how do you use it? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> no idea. It's just there. No, all I know so far is you if you go into your control panel you'll find card space. And you can open That's it up. That's the funniest thing. They just snuck that in there. They just slipped it in. Yeah. And I only I only happened to notice it because I in, you know, auditing the things they were going to put in. I think they've already been fixing a few a few, a few card space glitches. I don't think I saw the actual install. I think I saw an update to it. Yeah. So I was like, wait a minute. 
XP doesn't have it. Oh, yes, it does. I'll be so they just gave it to us. I'll be danged. And if you run it, you're able to create cards. Now, I don't know anybody who uses them yet, but uh, certainly the hope is that if Open IP, Open ID can be a back end, then that makes it, you know, completely open and documented, and no charge. No one's paying anything, and potentially we'll be able to begin using a, a single sign-on solution. Very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, let's okay, see. so that was my first goodie, and the second one was I had a really short, fun note from a, um, a Security Now listener who wanted to chime in that Spinrite didn't take long for him either. Oh, yeah, I remember had, after... <laughs> what was that, the three-month Spinrite? To... It knocked you out of your chair. Yeah, yeah when I really the, the, sunk in that you meant three months, I was like, what? Yeah, you see, the, 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 his name is Dan Morales. And uh, he sent a note through our GRC support email. He said that his subject was, I just purchased Spinrite 6.0, and my desktop was working in an hour. And he says, hello, I purchased a copy of Spinrite 6.0 this morning, 7-28-2007. So that was just, you know, a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. One day after my Dell Dimension 8400's Western Digital 160 gig hard drive crashed during a summer rainstorm. <laughs> So maybe his power went out briefly or something, but whatever happened, he says, it, it only took an hour for Spinrite to blast through the hard drive and clean it up. After an auto reboot, my main XP desktop, desktop came up again. I was so relieved. It saved me almost 100 gig in music files and the first three months of pictures of my nephew. Wow. I looked at your testimonial page, and there haven't been any new messages put up in a while. Actually, he's right. I, I've been I've, I've been discussing them here rather than posting them online and haven't been duplicating them. You're talking so about spinright.info. Exactly, the yeah. spinright.info page. And he says, I would love to see my positive story placed on your site. I already sent an email Aww. to friends and family to spread the word and keep Spinrite in mind in case they have any hard drive problems. Thanks so You're much. You're starting a Spinrite cult. Well, the, it's... The cult uh, <laughs> of Spinrite. Spread the word. Tell everyone you know. Spinrite. That's great. Absolutely. But you know, when something works like that and, uh, and other things do not, I can understand why people would get kind of excited and say, everybody you know, needs to know this. The thing that troubles me is I look at how much benefit our listeners are receiving from learning about spin right mm -hmm. through the podcast sort of mm -hmm. as a side effect of, of mm -hmm. their listening to security now. But I, and I think of like what a small percentage of all PC users you and I are talking to. And so think yeah. of all the systems that are like, Oh, well, sorry, reformat your drive. Just, yeah. You just lost all of your photos for, from your whole life. It's just well, I mention it all the time on the radio show, too. In fact, there's a, I think there's a drinking game involved. <laughs> <I> think, <laughs> you know how they have drinking games? I don't, when did the drinking game start? I can't remember, but would you, if somebody says a word, I think it was a Bob Newhart show. Whenever anybody said, hi, Bob, which apparently they said a lot in that show, you would, have a, you would take a drink. It's a college kid thing. Okay. Uh, so there's a drinking game for the radio show, apparently, every time I recommend Spinrite. They have a root beer. Oh, well, uh, okay. I think that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to mention the Nerds on Psych. This podcast is brought to you by those great folks in the little red Volkswagens. If you want to be a nerd, they want to hear from you. They're looking, they're growing, and they need more nerds to service their customers. Nerds with skills in a lot of different areas. You know, of course, I mean, I'm probably... You know, if you're already doing support, whether it's at the corporate level uh, or individuals, home support or Soho, 
Uh, that's the kind of people. They, they like people who like to troubleshoot, tear apart, rebuild. Uh, even if it's just your own system in your spare time, that's the kind of person. But it can be all sorts of experts, PC, Mac, Oracle, Cisco, you name it. They need it uh, from fix-it technicians to website designers, programmers. If you're in business for yourself, if you're trying to build this business, Nerds on Site can really help. Nerds are independent contractors. You're still in business for yourself. You're just not by yourself. You focus on what you love and not the burdens of running a business. I wish there were a Nerds on Site for podcasting, frankly. I would join in a heartbeat. Nerds on Site operates in seven countries in Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, probably by now a few more. Uh, They also have a University of Nerdology where you can hone your skills in areas like systems, architecture design, software development. On-site IT, desktop support, Soho, and residential IT. Look, if you're a nerd, here's what you do. You go to IWantToBeANerd.com, and you can register for a nerds-only meeting in your area today. They actually do these online, so it's very easy. And uh, you can learn all about it and decide if it has some value for you. I, uh, As I mentioned, I met all the Vancouver nerds, or many of them, and they love it. They say this is, this is exactly what they were looking for. Just go to IWantToBeANerd.com and find out for yourself. And we thank Nerds on Site for their continued and hearty support for Security Now. They really love you, Steve. They, they consider yeah. you an honorary nerd. <laughs> I think you are more than an honorary I'm nerd. glad probably. to be. You're a real nerd. <laughs> All right, so are you ready for some questions, Mr. G? Let's do it. All right. You, you were really funny when we were planning this issue. You said, okay, now, this is the one where I get to read, right? <laughs> well, because, it's important because, of to course, me. two weeks ago, we had, I know, I think we're going to have you read from now on. Yeah, well, you, you can do the mailbag, too, Leo. I'm a trained professional, Steve. I yes, don't want to well, say anything, but that's what I do and, for a living. And it shows. I have to have a pop filter in front of my microphone, <laughs> but you somehow managed to enunciate without blowing any wind into the microphone. You were so. fine, and, and I think it's kind of a good way to distinguish the two, but we'll, we'll worry about that offline. Okay. Uh, question one from listener David Laurie. An interesting issue, actually. He says there are open source free SSL certs available from cacert.org. And I think Thought, T-H-A-W-T-E, for a long time till VeriSignBottom was doing the same thing. Yes. Uh, he wanted to know what you think of these free certs versus the very expensive certs offered by companies like VeriSign. Well, it's, it's an interesting issue because, um, okay, first of all, Let's see. There's about nine things I want to say about this. Um, <laughs> you want me to the, count off one? <laughs> it, first of all, it doesn't. It doesn't actually work to have a certificate issued from somebody that your web browser doesn't trust. Because as, as as we've talked before, the whole idea is that when you're going to a remote website and you want to establish a secure encrypted SSL connection, Mm. not only, there are basically two things you're getting from that. You're first of all getting your traffic encrypted, which is a really good thing, but you're also getting a verification that they are who they say you are, which, that is, they are who they say they are. Um, For example, you go to https colon slash slash grc.com because I have a certificate which I got from VeriSign and you know and actually he brings up the point because I grumble about how much VeriSign charges me every couple years but but when at when I'm doing this the certificate that the browser receives from my server is checked against the list of certificate authorities that the browser already trusts 
and it checks to see whether my certificate was signed by one of them. The idea being that they're standing behind some process they went through for verifying that that grc.com really is that is the the person asking for a certificate every couple of years and paying for it um claiming to be grc.com really is grc.com so so first of all what the the the, the problem is that these guys are giving certificates away for free and it's fun on it's funny on their webpage they say and you know we're trying to or hoping to get our certificate authority installed in oh universal browsers i mean so in they, all these people they browsers. don't they're nowhere in the chain of trust exactly oh so so their certs would not be trusted right. but leo this it, it i wanted to verify that now if you've got ie around do you have it there uh, in, yeah, in front of, of you. If you go to and our, our listeners too go to uh, with IE or you can do it with other browsers if you know where. Go to the the tools, then Internet Options, then click the Content button. Okay. And then oh, or the Content tab, and then Certificates. Okay. And then choose slide over. I think it's the fourth tab is Trusted Root Certification Authorities. Yes, you're right. Yeah. What I was stunned by is look at. I mean, how many there are. A few years ago, that little scroll thumb wasn't nearly so small. Now you can hardly grab it. It's yeah. so, I mean, there yeah. are so many of them. And, and okay, now, I, I just, I wrote some of these down because, for example, there's Direction General de la Policia is a trusted certificate authority. The Japan Local Government PKI application, Chamber Sign Chambers of Commerce. TW government root certification is I don't know if that's Taiwan. The Hong Kong Post Office has a has a certificate in there. Post.trust root, public notary root, and even the Turk Trust Electronic Islam His Met Larry. So these internationally, I mean it makes sense. They've got to support international uh, well, certification, right? Now, by the does. way, if you want to see this in uh, Firefox, go to the Again, tools, advanced, click the encryption button, and then view certificate. No, that's not it. I wonder what, oh, authorities, there it is. Yeah, view the certificate manager, and the last tab is authorities. And it's, and it's by the way, Steve, it's very similar. They've actually organized it, which is nice, into sub-directories. Uh, but the uh, same one, Chamber of Commerce route, AOL Time Warner, they even have the, well, the Turkish one. Okay, now, here's what upsets me to some degree, is remember that... All these things, essentially, they've been installed in Windows right. and, and for our browsers to access. And it means that we will trust without any warning messages, right. without any exclamation points, without any pop-up dialogues, nothing. We will trust anybody who is signed by any of these people. So inherently, the more of these people you're trusting – the lower your security is. Well, presumably they validate this somehow, right? Well, yes, but, you know... Uh, <laughs> but, who, just, but who is Autoridad de Certificación uh, yeah, well, Firma mean, Profesional and, CIF? And, you know, I mean, who and, is this person? And certainly it's it's the case that if if somebody were caught doing something shady or underhanded, then then they they're their CA root certificate would be and could be removed from Windows and from our browsers 
But, you know, just sort of that's one of the things that I'm noticing also as I'm looking every time Windows is updating itself. I'm seeing root certificate updates are like being sent all the time now, meaning more random, bizarre trust is being spread around. Well, also, they they expire. So, uh, in fact, I've had this happen where the, the root certificate is expired and they have to be updated regularly. Yeah, but in 2029. Right. I mean, it's well, still the thing problem. that bothers me a little bit more is that somewhere like CA, CA Cert, which doesn't want to charge, can't set this up. That they are not in there. It's 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 people who have apparently who charge. Well, and and again, remember that there, along with a certificate, and, and this really speaks against my arguing and grumbling about how much I have to pay. I mean, I, I'm I'm glad. VeriSign goes jumps through hoops to verify me, right? Because I want them to verify everybody else. I mean, I want the idea that an SSL certificate is signed by someone to mean something, to right. mean that I have some reason to put my faith in them being who they are. And so, so the reason it's sort of a concern that there's just this bizarre list and growing list of of strange authorities which are have the full trust of my browser essentially is uh, do they have my full trust right. i mean me the me the user well so, you put your trust in a certifying authority i don't know who that is is that microsoft is that verisign who is the ultimate authority this well actually that's the problem is it microsoft is microsoft gives the certificates to windows so hopefully microsoft has decided this is a certificate they're willing to have windows trust right and and clearly i mean this is an explosion of certification authorities in the last 5 years i remember looking you know oh yeah five it was just years. a handful yeah oh you had verisign and thought and right. and you know and a few other well-known companies now you've got hong kong post office well of course you do why should now that's you're sounding provincial I, I, now Steve. i don't mean to sound that way but again it's just that's just so much yeah and 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 who looks at these right nobody and we just presume we just trust microsoft and Firefox is the same thing. I want to point out you're trusting Firefox when you use their certificates. Uh, by the way, they have at CA Cert they have a process where you could add their certificate to Internet Explorer, uh, but you would have to kind of trust them on your on your own. And, and of course, since if most people don't do that, then you use CA Cert on your website, they're gonna you're not gonna be a trusted site to them. That's exactly right. You are exactly. And see, the the reason Firefox is showing the same things is that it's actually not the browser. Who, oh, which it's is the operating managing. system. Yes, these oh. are OS. These are OS level things, oh. and then and there's an API that allows the browser to sort of show them to you and interface to them. Because of course, get that. yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's all the same on Windows. I was looking at the Mac list, and uh, uh, so presumably Apple does the same thing. Right. Okay. Uh, security la- uh, now listener Wes Trexler has a note about log me in's two factor authentication. We were talking about that on a previous episode. He says, during the multi-factor authentication episode, and then again in, in episode 101 with the PayPal dongle, I thought I'd write you about what LogMeIn.com has been doing for a few months now that I really like. Instead of having to carry around another dongle, LogMeIn allows you to use your cell phone as a second factor. Oh, that's clever. When you log in, you can have it send a code to your cell phone by text message as further security. Do you see any issues with this method? No, in fact, that's one of the things that we talked about in our 
in our multi-factor authentication episode was that there there were already some people who were who were doing this, and I and I think it's a it's a very clever and a and a nice way of operating. It means that again, something you have, meaning your phone, is is being used as an authentication technique, and the the, the value of that, the benefit, is that you don't have to have not only do you have not need another dongle, or as we were saying before, also multiple dongles for multiple people, but you're using. Not only something you have, but something you already have, meaning a cell phone, uh, given, of course, that you do have a cell phone. Well, and there's and so some the verification, I, too, with your number. I mean, that, you know, they, they can, I don't know if they can, but, but it is, you know, that's your number. Yes, and I don't know whether they look it up. I, I would imagine they don't, but, but certainly when you're creating your account with that's them. That's when they get it, yeah. You know, you say, yes, I have a cell phone. I want added security. Right. Here's my cell phone number. And so that's the number their server automatically dials and sends a text message to, which you then have to read from the screen and type it into the browser. It's very much sort of like an email loop, but using a cell phone. So, yeah, I, I think it's a, a tremendous solution. It is possible to spoof cell phone numbers, but I don't think you can spoof incoming, only outgoing calls. So it seems like that would work. It would, right. it would be secure. A lot of cell phone-based services like Shozu use this as a way of uh, verifying. Yeah, the the hacker would need to to somehow, you know, who didn't have your call, would need to somehow intercept a call going to you. Right. And, uh, you know, that's certainly beyond the Tricky. means of, of, you know, most, uh, you know, script kitty sort of Tom, Tom Cruise could do it in Mission Impossible, but nobody else. There you go. Alexander Wood, writing from Google Mail, asks, I reformat the hard drive on my main system every eight to nine months in order to eliminate bit rot. Wow. That's, that's what he called it, yeah. Wow. When I do, I do a full NTFS format. usually takes over an hour on my 240 gig RAID 0 array. It's uh, two 120 gigabyte Seagate drives. System's almost four years old now. Does this reformat force the drive to check every sector and ensure that my hard drives will last longer? Ah, interesting question. Does it help the drives in any other way, or does it in general hurt them because of the heavy-duty writing and work the drive has to do during a reformat? The drives, as he said, are four years old. They seem fine, probably mostly because they're well-cooled, mounted on an Alfanos suspension from silentpcreview.com, and because the computer never gets moved... It is in a location with good ventilation. I do back up to create an external drive whenever, or to an external drive whenever I create important data, which is, of course, a very good idea. Well, this is a, this is an interesting idea. Certainly, this guy is being very careful. He and just formats I, every t- every every few months, basically. Yeah, about every eight to nine months, he does a format. Now, uh, RAID zero is the spanning RAID, right. so he takes two 120 gig drives and he he they're they're drives merged by his RAID controller into yeah. a, into a, a virtual 240 gig array. Now, if you do a a quick NTFS format, which is which is an option offered when you just when you when you know your drives are good, basically all that does is it just builds the file structure onto a drive which it assumes is empty and and all sectors are perfect, which all contemporary drives, of course, as we've talked about before, because they've got on the fly sector relocation, they look perfect from the outside. But when you do a a painful, as he said, you know, multi-hour format, <laughs> what's going on is, and, and this, you know... As opposed hails, to the quick format, which you can do. Exactly, as opposed to the quick format. And this hails from the original days when drives were not known to present a perfect surface. That is, right. where they actually had defects. Original drives, old RLL and MFM drives, had 
had bit flags in the headers of their sectors that said the following sector is defective. Don't uh. use it. So, so when you did a so-called high-level format as opposed to a low-level format, which is actually a physical format of the surface, the high-level format is the thing that builds the file structure on the disk. When you do that, the, the system would go out and read every single sector to, to check for bad flags in the sector headers and also to just to make sure that it, can, it, it is able to read the sector without any errors. So that's what's going on for the two hours is, is his driver just sitting there going, you know, tr- uh, cylinder by cylinder, reading all the sectors, looking for any bad flag bits, which it will almost certainly not find, but it is doing a read. And as we talked about several weeks ago, if the drive has some correction, which it, it is applying to the sectors, which grows beyond a certain point, that will flag the sector as needing to be replaced before it gets bad enough that it's no longer correctable. So the answer to his question is yes. When he refers to bit rot, this is what he's talking about. And doing a, doing a, a full format, a full high-level format, will force the system to read every sector and allow your drive very much like running Spinrite on it does, and it's why Spinrite takes hours too. Is that it? Just you know, it takes that long to read that much data, suck it through the bus, um, even though if you're not doing anything with it, it just it just takes that long to read all that data. Um, in the process, the drive is given the opportunity of noticing that there's a problem on a sector that it wouldn't otherwise have been able to notice by itself, and and. Uh, that allows it to spare the sector out, removing it from service. So it's yeah, it's a useful thing to do for sure. In the old days, uh, with pre-IDE drives, we'd be able to do a low-level format on these uh, RLLs and MFM drives. You can't do a low-level format anymore. Correct. Um, the, the command is still there and it's supported, but all it does is zero the sector in most cases. It doesn't actually rewrite the headers, which is what real low-level formats used to do. So the OS format is the best you can do. Uh, well, actually, running Spinrite is that even would be better even better. Because, yeah, it's it's made for that, and it can then handle the problem. Is if you were doing a format and you ran across a sector that that you couldn't read. Now, presumably, he's he's backed up all his data. He's doing a format, and then he has to restore it. So right. that's why Spinrite is a superior solution. If you don't what have to you do all the do. backup and restore things. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Remember, the format says I'm wiping out my right. entire file system, and then I'm reestablishing it. So he's got to do a backup. Hopefully, he wants to ver. I mean, you would want to verify the backup to make sure that you really got it because you're about to re- reformat the the you know the the drive that that backup came from deliberately erasing everything, then you are restoring in order to put everything back. So, you know, Spinrite essentially folds all that into a single operation and certainly makes it a lot easier to do. Mark Schreiber in San Francisco has a common problem. He uses a form on his website for email, and he says, now, lately spammers have figured out how to send spam via this email form. He says, I guess that's why people use CAPTCHAs. My uh, my hosting service won't allow me to use a CAPTCHA. Uh, he does have anti-spam but a lot of it gets through. He says, is there any way to outwit the spammers? Is form mail dead? Um, unfortunately, I've got to say that um, it's a problem now, although um, I haven't yet implemented myself reCAPTCHA, 
Although I, I want to find a reason gonna, to. T- I have to tell you, uh, just from my own experience, that spammers are not machines. That CAPTCHA doesn't stop them. Uh, maybe they are using robotics. I have spammers uh, on twit.tv. It's one of the reasons I turned off comments who would not only fill out the form, but wait for the email to come back to them. They actually have email accounts for the, I was doing email validation and they'd still spam. And so, and this is like spam, spam or, or just well, like, a and this is the people. thing. I, I, and I, I think I know what's happening to Mark because we have a form for asking questions on the lab and it, it, what's happening is these spammers are hiring very cheap labor in third right. world nations uh-huh. to just look for every form and fill it out. They're really trying to do comment spam. I bet you anything what he's getting is a bunch of links. And it's not spam to him. They're hoping that it'll get on a page somewhere. Our form, for instance, on the lab, it's an email form. It doesn't go on a page, but we still get that kind of spam, the kind of spam they'd like to have show up on a web page as a comment. It's called, it's called and, comment spam. Yes, and of course you know why. It's because you've got a highly ranked right. site. They want our and Google it, juice. Exactly. So, so if their links appear on your site, the the you know um, search engines assume that you're explicitly linking to them because you think they're good people. Right. And I can tell you right now, capture doesn't stop them. Even email validation wow. doesn't stop them. I mean, and, and I've talked to many other people who say the same thing. You know, on to leave a comment on Twitter, you have you had in the old days, you had to register get with a real email address which i would then send a code to you then click the link and validate it they would do that not only would they create these accounts they'd sit on them for months sleeper accounts and then ladle the spam out uh, it was it was it's a very big problem so captcha is not going to fix it uh, wow. you know delayed you know email validation doesn't fix nothing fixes it these people are very determined and the truth is they don't really care if it works or not they just do it everywhere Yep. You know, we use no follow links, the and and which makes that makes means that they get no Google juice out of it. Doesn't matter, they still wow. do it. They're not smart. They're just they're they're low. <laughs> just persistent. <laughs> just persistent. And 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 they're just shotgunning everything. That's the thing. That's the point. And I suspect that's what Mark's getting. They see a form. They don't care. They don't pay attention enough to see whether it's comment spam or going to you personally. Going to you personally is worthless to them. They don't want that. Right. Uh, let's talk about Chad in Charlotte, North Carolina. Great place for barbecue. I can tell you. He says he wants to increase his anonymity online. He's heard about using public proxy servers. In fact, he's been to those sites we've mentioned before where they have lists all over the you know, all over the world where you can use public proxy servers. He says, it, is it dangerous to use these? Plus, is there an advantage to using different types? There are anonymous, high anonymity. I guess that'd be like Tor, transparent. Could you talk a little more about these proxy servers, public proxy servers? Yeah, um, you know, the, essentially... My sense is this problem has been solved. That is, this need has been addressed by, as, as you just mentioned a second ago, Leo, by Tor, um, the onion router system. We've done uh, an entire episode on Tor, Chad. So if you're listening to this, as I hope you are, um, check out our episode on Tor. It's a beautiful technology which is specifically for allowing people to be anonymous. And it's an open source effort um, the system is such that even malicious Tor servers aren't able to really take too much advantage. Although if, if you're on the, the server at the very edge of the network where you emerge from the onion router, it'll be decrypting your traffic and, you know, and could be seeing what you're doing. But, but again, anonymity to third parties is generally what your goal is. The reason I think this is superior to these lists of public proxy servers is there's no way to know 
what the motivations are for those. And they could be bad guys who have gotten their their proxy servers on these lists specifically because they hope people will use them and they're going to, in one way or another, abuse the trust of the proxy. So, so they'd be watching so, the traffic that's going through them, for instance. Sure, they could be. Actually, absolutely. I mean, literally, if you're if you're logging in to your um, you know, they may be seeing your log on passwords going by and, and have, you know, and grab your account and use it to spam. So so I would say since there is a solution as good as Tor and no real strong reason not to use it because it's configurable and it's, you know, designed for this and um, and it does it does take measures to prevent any single bad Tor server from being able to to abuse the user again. We cover all this in our Torah episode. I would suggest Chad that you listen to that and give Torah a try. Now he was, and he does say he's doing it for anonymity. There is, I should point out, another reason why people use these. Uh, it's not, and it's not anonymity. It's because they want. It, it happens a lot in Canada. This is how I know about it. They want to appear to be coming from another country. In the case of Canadians, they can't use, uh, you know, the, some software they can't download or whatever because they're not in the U.S. So they'll use a public proxy server that gives an endpoint in the U.S. Uh, and and then that way they can be a, be an American. But that's a whole different purpose. Well, and that, that that's a very good point too about Tor. Tor has servers all over the world. But you and wouldn't you use are, it for that because you don't know where you're going to end up. No, remember uh, we we took a question. You, I think it was a mailbag two weeks ago yeah. where the guy mentioned that you're able to ask for a specific ah. server to be your endpoint. Oh, okay. And and he was talking about it from a standpoint of uh, creating a static IP. That right. is, it was static and never changing, and not his. <laughs> Clever. I think that's what transparent would be. And then there's anonymous and high anonymity. Uh, Patrick wants to know more uh, about uh, this PayPal authentication process. He's worried if it's vulnerable to a a man-in-the-middle attack. He's writing from Sartell, Minnesota. You know how when you go to a website and pay with PayPal, it'll bounce you to the PayPal site where you enter your password and then bounce you back to the originating site. He says, could could this transaction be hijacked or could a malicious site site in the the first place act as a man-in-the-middle between you and PayPal and steal your password info? For example, he says, you go to you know, badguydiamonds.com, try to buy a stone, a false PayPal screen saying HTTPS, by the way, is shown and captures your info as it's relayed to PayPal in the background. Then you complete your transaction and they've got your PayPal login. He says, well, H- is, is HTTPS going to always show the true website in the URL? Um, well, this is a great question because uh, it involves a couple things. Um, first of all, we'll mention, as we have, and the very popular PayPal security key. An advantage of that is that 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 um, number that you append to your login password is only valid for thirty seconds. So even so, if they get it, they can't they can't reuse it. Exactly. That's what's so nice about this. And and I've got to say though, I mean, he's he brings up a very good point. Yeah, and I do this all the time. I, every time I buy from PayPal, this is what happens. Well, yes, and and you know when when I'm using some third party website and they say, "Would you like to use PayPal?" I say, "Well, yeah, I you know I want to." Right. I, I click on that option because I love the idea of not giving these people my any you know my PayPal information and and using PayPal, but. Then I'm redirected to PayPal, and I, I mean, I'm freaked out at that point because it just seems to me, exactly as it seems to Patrick, that, you know, how do I know I really went to PayPal? So this is well, where... You, he's I mean, saying, can you look at the address bar and trust it? 
Um, no, I would say oh, that th- the problem is that if, for example, if something got into your local hosts file or was filtering your internet traffic, that is, if something bad is on your computer, for example, used a script exploit to to get into your machine, your hosts file, as we've talked about before, is the first place that your system looks for for the equivalent of DNS. So if there was if there was PayPal.com entering your host file referring to a bogus IP, you your browser could show PayPal.com and not be at PayPal, not have gone to one of PayPal's um, IP addresses. So, but but again, it would it would have a difficult time. Um, They'd have to get to your showing, system. I mean, this is a complicated hack. Well, but again, it's you know if they also put in a trusted root certificate, which is available on your system, uh-huh. then you you they could sign the certificate of the bogus website pretending to be PayPal, and your browser wouldn't even notice. And as far as I know, nothing would notice. So I mean, it is you know the, again, it's it's you're you're right, Leo, that it involves a a client side attack it involves doing things on your machine but it's you know you just do want to be careful about this i'm glad patrick brings it up because i mean i always right click on the page make sure that i've got a certificate from uh, that you know that is valid from from paypal and is signed by you know the hong kong post office <laughs> now if you get that certificate and you look at it you, then you feel pretty confident right Yes. Then I'm, you know, and they, you know, I, I, I use a different email address always when I'm logging into these guys. PayPal has like my main personal address, not the one I normally use. So the fact that I've been redirected to PayPal and PayPal has found, you know, knows my real email address, which they got from my PayPal cookie on my machine in order to, I mean, it's not in the cookie, but it it allows PayPal to associate me with them. It's like, okay, this must be PayPal because, you know, they know things I didn't tell this, this, this third party site. You got me scared now. Well, it's, it's a little freaky. Got a letter from Yorkshire in the UK. Paul Elliott is wondering about what he calls native hard drive encryption. We're talking about TPM. We did that on episode 99, which is a the hardware chip that does encryption. He's, he asks how it's used to encrypt the entire hard drive. For instance, he says, in a standard encrypted file, if a single bit becomes corrupted, boom, the whole file is lost because the encryption breaks. Is that true for hard drive encryption? It's quite scary to think about losing an entire hard drive from a single bad bit. Or am I missing something? Well, there are a couple things that are sort of confused here that I wanted to clarify. First of all, um, I did talk about hard drive encryption referring to, I believe it was Hitachi, who in rummaging around, I had noticed they were announcing the very first native drive encryption technology so that more than just locking the hard drive, this thing would actually require to be given a password at PowerUp from the BIOS, presumably. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to boot. And and then it would use... This this actually a passphrase of some sort. It would use that as the the cryptographic key to perform on the fly decryption as sectors come off the drive and as sectors go onto the drive. So that no 
non-encrypted data is ever stored on the drive. Now, that does require BIOS support. And again, this is just leading it stuff that none of this exists as far as I know. But I was also talking about my ThinkPad where I've got my fingerprint reader and I've enabled the TPM system so that it checks my fingerprint. And given that it matches, it then uses the associated password to as the password to unlock the hard drive. Now, that's again, that's different than encrypting it. Um, many laptops support the notion of locking the hard drive. It's something that is unlockable by the manufacturer and but it's you know it's go through get a court order the fbi or or law enforcement would be net would be needed to say oh, look we need to There's get the data door. oh yeah the, you know absolutely and there are yeah. data recovery companies that also have the ability to get past that I so that. basically it just i mean it makes it much more difficult but it's certainly not as strong as encrypting the entire drive which is why i really love that idea and but hopefully, how robust is that i mean he wants he's worried about a you know bit corruption ah right and um exactly the the next point is this is always done on a sector by sector basis the drive doesn't know about files the file system and the operating system know about files. The drive just knows about sectors. So each run of, of the 4,096 bits or 512 bytes of a sector would be encrypted. And it is the case that with this, if you had something that was uncorrectable, um, you would no longer be able to, for example, recover everything in the sector except that little run of bad bits. So, for example, some of the benefit that Spinrite offers would be lost because because it'd be no longer possible. Basically, the entire sector would have to be recovered at once or at least up to the point. Presumably, you, you could be doing encryption until you get to the bad spot. So the further down the sector it is, the more unencrypted data you would get. So, you know, it, it is the case that there would be some fragility, but it would only be 512 bytes and only in the case that that sector was un uncorrectable prior to doing the decryption. So it's really it no different than an uncrypted drive, really. An unencrypted drive. Right? That's, right. that's, that's roughly the same. Yeah. Yep. Moving along to question number eight from Leo. I like the name. Leo Salin in Australia. He uh, wanted to listen to On Intelligence which is the book we've been talking about, the Paul Hawkins book. He says, I love the show. I own Spinrite. I've even used it to save myself. Uh, and he's using it all the time, so he hopes he doesn't have to use it again to save himself. He went to look for On Intelligence on Audible uh, in Australia. Uh, you do get the free book, he said, but he couldn't find the listing for the book or author. And I, you know, we get this from time to time. Um, understand that... I'll answer this one, Steve. Understand that... Um, and by the way, uh, Audible doesn't even sponsor this podcast, so it's kind of this is gratuitous here. But understand that Audible is just a bookstore, and uh, they are uh, limited by what the publishers want to do. In fact, it's kind of interesting if you're in Britain and you want to listen to Harry Potter, you have to listen to Stephen Fry read it. If you're in the U.S., you have to listen to Jim Dale read it, and that's just because they're different publishers. So apparently, on intelligence. Uh, either has a different publisher in Australia who doesn't want to support audio audiobooks or whatever. You know, there's some reason. But it's it's it comes down to essentially the fact that, it, it, unfortunately, it's not yet an international marketplace uh, when it comes to books. Uh, same reason it's you can't get the UK version of Harry Potter in the States. 
and vice versa. Um, so, Leo, my, my suggestion is, you, I guess you can't listen to it, but you certainly could buy it. And I would look for it. Hawkins, Jeff, H-A-W-K-I-N-S is the author. And I don't know what the Sony uh, Connect situation is with that. They may or may not. They have the same restrictions, I'm sure. They may or may not have an ebook version of it. That's where you got it, right, Steve? Yeah. So, which is, uh, but you have to have a Sony ebook reader. Worth reading however you get it. And he says at the end, thanks again for the best podcast out there and for Spinrite. And I, I ought to mention, I did mention it before also, that I have Jeff's book on the palm, not surprisingly. Oh, his, you didn't get it on the a, Sony the, Connect reader. You got it on the palm. Exactly. Oh. I, I, I have it on both. I got it on, on, on the reader. I Remember, I wanted to see whether I could go back to reading on the palm, right. even though, because the screen is so high contrast on the palm, but I just love the size of the right. screen on the on the e-reader. So. Where did you yeah, get it for no, the Palm? No where, where, what bookstore did you get that from? Uh, it's the main Palm. Uh, you can just ereader.com, and okay. they've def- they definitely have it there. Okay. Well, uh, they have it there but if you're we, in the U.S. Right. Exactly. That's the problem is that it's all, you know, it's international. It's, you know, it's tough because we're an international podcast. For instance, VJ Albuquerque in London. Or it could be VJ London in Albuquerque. Doesn't matter. Now has plenty of room on his drive, he says, Dear Steve and Leo, after hearing about Spacemonger, which, by the way, Steve, I've been recommending everywhere, the original free version. Yep, it's so nice. Ah, I just recommended it on the radio show last weekend. He says, I've reclaimed virtually gigabytes of data from a hard drive. It gives you a visual display of what's wasting space in your hard drive. It makes it easier to get rid of it. Yeah. He says, is there something for memory, for RAM? He's using the process monitor. You hit Control-Alt-Delete to get that task manager and then you can click processes and see the list of processes but there must be a simpler friendlier tool out there something like space monger for ram <laughs> i like it or ram ram monger or something yeah um well it was an interesting question um I, so i wanted to explain that you know ram is an entirely different animal than than hard drive space because it is it is inherently um dynamic so applications which are running will will use differing amounts of ram but there's really no way to tell an application to stop using that much memory unless it's a sloppy application that for example you for example you you could have a um, a photo editing program where you edit a big photo which takes up a whole bunch of memory and then when you close that that photo it doesn't release the memory, um, for example. So it, it, it's possible that you could have apps which are misbehaving and essentially leaking memory. But thankfully, um, all Windows versions for the last decade have cleaned up the so-called resource leaks when the application terminates and freed up anything, any resources that they had allocated. So really, just terminating processes if you can, that is, if you don't need them around that are using up a lot of memory, will release their memory. But there isn't anything like you that you could run to, to like really clean up memory. There are some sort of hokey programs that are supposed to optimize your RAM, but um, they've they've really got a bad reputation. And really, just if you had this problem, just restarting Windows and getting things going again is the way to clear everything out. In the old days of Windows 95, 98, and ME, the, the memory manager was pretty pathetic. And so you would have fragmentation of RAM, and you'd have some issues. But XP's memory manager is fine, and there's no point in compacting RAM. Uh, right. You know, right. I think the memory manager does a pretty good job of... You can't, you can't solve of getting rid of uh, unused blocks. Like you can't solve a memory leak. Uh, but nothing could solve it. 
if if the if the operating system won't cl- won't get rid of that uh, block, you know, release the block, no program's going to come along and do it. So, right. Bill Rakosinik of Bishop Georgia has actually a very interesting question. He says, "Can I get a virus by watching video on YouTube? Can video infect you? Is it an executable?" It's interesting. Um, unfortunately. And I don't know of any instance of this happening, but yes. Actually, there have been old instances. I know that real media years ago was having problems with with um, malware, essentially, or and mal what's, videos. What's happening is you have an executable program, like like the Winamp player, which had a problem also. Yep. And you take advantage of a flaw in the executable program. So the, the video itself is harmless. It's the fact that it's using a flaw in the video, in the video player. Or even in, in in some cases in the codecs themselves, that yeah. is the actual right. the actual decompressor, which goes from the compressed format. The the so so essentially, it's not the case that any video could give you this kind of problem. It's that the video would be a way of getting um, code in your machine, which is exploitable. That is that where there's some sort of a security flaw in something not even about security. It's about playing music or playing videos. But but the 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 the, the malicious they've found a way of sort of, for example, giving bogus data in the video to the thing that's trying to play it back, which cause you know your typical thing like a buffer overrun or a stack overflow or something that would then allow additional code contained in the movie file to execute and so yes you would essentially be affected infected by watching that video and again it's you know it's like anything else it's it's something which as soon as it's found it'll be patched by by the vendor of your os and this kind of stuff is going on all the time so potentially it could be a problem youtube uses flash i don't know of any exploits with flash right now but there of course there always could be somebody could find a flaw in flash this reminds me of the jpeg flaw we've talked about before same thing a jpeg itself is harmless because it isn't an executable but the player in this case your browser or whatever program is displaying the jpeg could have a flaw that then the data in the jpeg file could be used to exploit exactly Uh, i think that's the best advice is keep your codecs and your players up to date you know but it's harder because you know we, we keep our operating system up to date because it's automatic uh you know if 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 you're using the real media player i don't know how automatic those updates are you guys I guess until you run it, you don't know. Well, it's a very good point. I mean, we've sort of touched on this issue tangentially before when we've talked about websites, for example, using old exploitable wiki code right. or, or, right. or something, you know, where, where you, know, you know, now we've got Macs updating themselves, Windows is updating itself constantly. I mean, you know, it's now, you know, we're all running forward trying to keep our software secure, yet all of this sort of um, non prime time code can sit on servers for a long time and and be there you know years after exploits are known and it is it is the way people are now exploiting these sorts of systems heck you you made that point you made that point really well where you said that well now that windows is in a good shape they're going to look for other vectors yep other low-hanging fruit as they say marcus uh uh, let's see i think it's probably kajmer kajmerik in kenai alaska is worried, as I am, about U3. That's that new technology in the flash drives that automatically launch applications when you plug in the flash drive. He says, 
he wonders if 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 it's insecure, how do I get it off my jump drive? He said you'd cover this, but we haven't covered it yet. We haven't. Yeah, in fact, you know, I was going to talk, you know, enthusiastically about U3 in the vein of it being a, a virtual machine sort of technology. The idea being that you could carry this around and plug it in to a, a machine. But and so I got some. I mean, I purchased them deliberately to exper- experiment with them. And I'll tell you, Leo, I mean, for a security person, the idea that, you know, you plug this into a system and without asking you, it does a bunch of stuff yeah. to that machine. I just don't like it. it. It ought to come neutered so that you have to manually enable the if you want them rather than the other way around. It, so I just, you know, I thought I'm not helping these people. This yeah. just is not right. You know, the easy way to do this would be have an auto run dot INF file on there and then you could disable it by just deleting that. But they don't do that. They mount a disk, a bootable disk, essentially. And there's no way, as far as I can tell, there's no way to disable that functionality in a U3 thumb drive, is there? Now, um, well, the good news is that they provide the option for scrubbing themselves off of the thumb. But, of course, that's only after it runs the first time. So, you know, we, we, we can presume there's nothing evil about U3. I didn't mean to assume that there was. I just dislike from a security standpoint the idea and i mean then well let me finish that thought the idea that it's enabled by default when all you're doing is buying ram you know i mean you you just want to buy a thumb drive you buy it from sandisk and it has u3 and but all you want is two gigs or four gigs or whatever and instead you get this thing that runs the moment that you know the first time you it has contact with your machine it's like okay that seems backwards to me. So, you, so be, you del- if you delete the U3 launch pad, it won't do that anymore. You No, you, it turns out it is pernicious. You have to use it to delete itself. Be, and, I, and I've experimented with this because I have scraped it off of, of a couple of these thumb drives. You know, and, and so you can't get rid of it easily. You have to use it to remove itself because it needs to uninstall the mounted virtual CD which it uses to protect part right. of itself from accidental erasure. It's got to uninstall that and then delete itself and clean itself off. And, you know, it goes through a bunch to remove. So so the answer to Marcus's question is just look at the menu that pops up. There is a way to completely remove it from your system. And, you know, I'm glad for that. But I sure wish they did it differently. I wish they had it like, hey, you've got, you know, a chunk of files there and you run something to install it on itself rather than having it active when you buy it. Cause most people just want the storage space. They don't want this thing to, to take off and run. If you go to u3.com slash uninstall, uh, it says, wait, <laughs> you're about to throw out the part that makes your drive smart. The launch pad makes your drive more than a data storage device. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. If you're uninstalling due to a problem, check out our troubleshooting page. Removing the U3 launchpad disables the smart functionality, so think before you click and make the smart choice. Oh, my God. Yeah, boo-hoo. Boo-hoo. Finally, they have links that say, tell me more. I'll, cle- I'll keep the launchpad for now. Or finally, you can click the last one that says remove launchpad, and then you provide the brand of the smart drive. You have to give them a reason. Ugh. Although my suggestion would be give a reason. U3 sucks. 
and then submit and continue. You have to go through hoops. And I really think it's inappropriate for them to make this big deal about how cool, you know, don't throw it out. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously you're there at that page because you you've, made the, deci- yes. you've made the decision. <sighs> you know, and what they don't say, and I wish they would, they say all the benefits of you three. At no point on this page do they talk about why you might want to remove it. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Thanks. So we won't be, we will not be promoting them no. as something that we think is wonderful. And, uh, and there's use for it, are- but, but, and, and, but hackers have a great use for it too. So we should just point out youth, but there, you can, there is a the kind of a generic U3 uninstaller, U3.com slash uninstall. And again, I'm sure we're going to get mail from people saying, hey, I use U3 thumb drives and I love them. It does blah, 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 blah. I've got all, I've got Skype and I've got my applications and I've got, I've got, you know, uh, crypto stuff and it's so cool because I can go to anyone's computer and plug it in and it just takes over and runs and I can do what I want and then when I when I unmount it and pull it out you know my whole little U3 environment comes with me and it's like yes I know and that's what it does so there's the only commercial I'm going to give them I just think that it is backwards that this thing is running by default and just goes the moment you you first touch it to a computer rather than hey if you want u3 have it installed but have it have it passive until you explicitly enable it on that device then it should come to life i just i I mean clearly the attitude you just displayed leo reading that page shows you know that these people think differently yeah so well i mean in in their defense you don't have to buy a u3 drive i mean the problem is you get them i got it by accident you know, you, you just say, oh, I'll take a thumb drive, and you don't see, oh, it's a U3 drive. Right. Well, for example, SanDisk is, is promoting it as, you know, value added to right. your four gigs. It's like, yeah, but I don't want it. But it turns out you can't get rid of it until you run it. And that's wrong. Well, I'm not sure that's true. I'm looking at um, PC Magazine has an article on, it says, keeping U3 under control. It says, if you insert the drive and hold the shift key down, just like auto run, it won't do the U3. Okay, good. And at that point, you can then go to the device manager. And just uh, format it. <laughs> uh, no, formatting it does not work, actually. Uh, but you can, but, but can right-click the U3 drive and choose Disable on U3 so that it will not automatically launch. It doesn't release the space, but at least it won't automatically launch. So I think that you... And then I presume you could run the removal tool that you've downloaded by pulling teeth at U3.com. So I think wow. you could actually get rid of it without running it at any, any one time. It does... Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it does put stuff on your system, right? The first time you run it, does it not copy? So. It I don't think so. I don't think I think that that's one of the cool things that, it, that you There's know, no that they're promoting. no on your system left lying um, Although, it does, you do have to U3-eyes the application. Unless the applications are specifically U3-aware, they may be mucking around making modifications. So you have to, I mean, I mean, it, it, this is an uphill battle these U3 guys are, are, are promoting here. Um, and I did. I downloaded all the information once and read through it. It's like, okay, this seems like a lot to go through. Well, as we, you know, I mean, look, if you listen to security now, you know it's a bad idea to let anything install anything <laughs> at any time, <laughs> period. Uh, and so if you're that kind of paranoid person, there you go. That's what you need to know. Sam Osborne, Bathurst, New South Wales, Australia, has been pondering CAPTCHAs. Couldn't CAPTCHA be more like a... General knowledge question in an image. See, everybody's trying to think of new ways to have CAPTCHAs work. Yep. So he's saying, you know, I, obviously the whole point is to disable or defeat AI in computers. For example, he says, why don't they just say, what is the capital of Australia? Or type in the word enough backwards. 
or spell out the number eight. That's an interesting idea. A color that is between red and yellow that is also a fruit. Isn't how could a computer? Because the computer doesn't understand a question like that and can't get the context of that. Yeah, the problem is I have a hard time understanding. The question. <laughs> Come on, Steve. I mean, a is, color is that's Sid- between red and yellow. I hope, Sydney, also is, I hope Sydney is the capital Sydney? of Australia. Enough. Type the word enough backwards. You could do. Okay. The problem is, first of all, okay. There, there are there are two classes of question he asked. Some are knowledge, and some are puzzles. Can't do knowledge. Um, I agree with you. You can't do yeah, knowledge. The problem with knowledge is that then you have the people have to know the answer. Yeah. And it's like, you know, what's Claus's first name? <laughs> it's like, oh, well, Santa. Right. OK, well, that's that's maybe knowledge, but it's also sort of a puzzle or, or certainly type in the word enough backwards. That's a puzzle or spell out the number eight is a puzzle. But in what language? So now we have language problems because these things and some people spell color as actually he did i spell it c-o-l-o-r he spelled it in his email c-o-l-o-u-r right so that's a problem and i so i assume that the fruit he's thinking of is orange which is between (laughs) red and yellow right but i'm not sure what between red and yellow means but mostly it's not possible to have a large enough collection of these puzzles that some spammers not going to sit there failing the captcha capturing the puzzles and then building a solver that just knows all the puzzles that are possible and this did also sort of come up in our captcha episode by definition a captcha has to be a a puzzle or a task that can that is fully automatable meaning that no one sat down and came up with all of the possible questions and answers, but rather an algorithm randomly generated numbers and letters, turned them into a picture, messed up the picture to make it hard to automate, and then presented it. Right. So anyway, um, you know, you're right. Lots of people have been have been trying to come up with with solutions, but as as he says, a general knowledge question, the problem is we don't all have the same knowledge. And um, anything that has a limited domain of questions can be brute forced. And then, you know, goodbye, CAPTCHA. Right. Steve, it's always a pleasure talking to you. You, you, <laughs> you make this all clear. I love it. Well, it's always fun doing this, Leo. I, I really appreciate here we are at the end of our second year, not yet into our third year, end of our second year with episode 104. I just want to thank our listeners for being so great. They yeah. They they send lots of email. They're, they're posting lots of questions to the Security Now page at grc.com. I really do appreciate people who are saying, hey, you know, I bought Spinrite uh, knowing that I may need it someday and, and to support the show. And uh, and of course, I know that they are they're uh, signing up for your PayPal donation donations over on twit.tv, Leo. So we just got, I mean, a ton of really great listeners. And I, I love doing the show with you. You know, well, I love doing it with you. And you know who's really uh, been very supportive for more than a year now? So I can't remember what episode. I think episode 30 or 40 is a Starro. And we thank them for their support. And encourage you, if you're looking for security in your office or home, to look no farther than Astaro, A-S-T-A-R-O dot com, the Astaro Security Gateway. Now, there's a hardware appliance. That's what I use and what businesses probably would want. It's, it's kind of like a router, but boy, it does everything. I mean, it's amazing. Best of breed, open source and commercial software to cover every bit of security. Everything from, of course, a firewall, 
uh, intrusion protection. You get remote access and VPN via SSL, uh, as well as uh, L2TP and IPsec, PPTP tunneling. I mean, it's amazing. But also, I mean, you know, that's kind of the guts of it, but it also does all that filtering that you want to do. It, it's it fil- two, two kinds of antivirus filtering for your email. Anti-spam, anti-phishing, transparent encryption, content filtering for the web, antivirus for the web. Uh, you also can control how anti-spyware, of course. You can control how your uh, employees use instant messenger peer-to-peer. I mean, it just goes, uh, the list is long. The best thing to do is to call Astaro and make an appointment. You can just get a free trial of this thing. I think you're going to love it. Easy to set up. If I Hey, if I could do it, you can do it. Easy to set up. Very powerful. And a real great state of mind security. 877, the number 4-A-S-T-A-R-O. The boss will thank you for it. It's 877-4-A-S-T-A-R-O. 877-427-8276. You can also uh, visit them online, A-S-T-A-R-O.com. And if you're a home user, non-commercial user, download for free and continue to use the Astaro software and put it on a beige box. And man, I mean, we've, we've talked before about solutions like Smoothwall. This is so much more competent and automatic updates for both the uh, the antivirus and the uh, and the content filtering you got a staro up to date all the subscriptions astaro.com slash security now astaro.com slash security now it says for 30 days but if you're a non-commercial that's for the commercial users non-commercial users you continue to use it and they are now waiving that 79 euro uh, subscription fee these are these are good people who make a great product astaro.com we thank them after more than a year of support for continuing to support security now. Steve, I would be remiss if I didn't mention GRC.com after all those mm. nice things you said. GRC is a great place to get free stuff like the Security Now a podcast, of course, in 16 kilobit versions for the download impaired. Also, uh, great transcriptions, thanks to Elaine. But also all of Steve's free software like Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, Wismo. A ton of, I mean, Steve just writes all this great stuff. It's absolutely free. GRC.com. What's not free is Spinrite, his great disk maintenance and recovery utility. Every every nerd ought to have one. Actually, all the nerds do have one, don't they? They have a, they do. Yep. They have a site license. Well, Steve, uh, thanks so much for a great two years. And here's to many, many more. As long as you want to do security now, uh, as long as people continue to listen, there's no reason not to keep doing it. I just, I love it too. Thank you, Steve. Well, I'm glad, Leo. It's my pleasure. And next week, we start into our third year with episode 105. Happy anniversary. See you later. Security now.